This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. I am your host, Stuart, in L.A., and this is our second entry in the Philip K. Dick book retrospective, which corresponds with our now-playing movie retrospective of Philip K. Dick works. Right now, we're reviewing the movie Total Recall, and I'm about to take on the short story that inspired it. We can remember it for you wholesale. It's only 20 pages, so you could probably click stop right now on this podcast, go read it, and come back and we can have the discussion. Obviously, with it only being 20 pages long, this is going to be spoiler-filled. There's no way for me to talk about 20 pages and not tell you beginning to end what happens. It was first published in 1966. I'm not entirely sure when it was written, but I'm going to presume that it was sometime around that. Philip K. Dick was also in the process of writing the last work we covered, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right around the same time. He was also experimenting with LSD. I think you can kind of get that sense of the idea of having a vacation you don't really have in which you just sit in a chair and you have all of the memories. It definitely seems to play on some of his drug habit, and that becomes increasingly more prominent in his writings and his life throughout the decade. I'm sure by the time we get to Scanner Darkly, we will see him in the throes of a real full-on drug addiction. But for now, he's merely experimenting with it and having out-of-body experiences, struggling with debt, struggling with being a lowly writer, and yet having a career within the science fiction genre of being highly established. Well, let's get into it. If you're familiar with the movie, you know that Douglas Quaid is a muscle-bound construction worker dreaming of Mars. The character here, Douglas Quayle, is a, quote, miserable little salaried employee. He is nothing like the He-Man that Arnold is. He's just an average guy who lives in Chicago and wakes up dreaming of Mars, and his wife doesn't understand and talks about having an underwater vacation. Indeed, much like the movie, he ends up at Recall Incorporated, a company that promises to give you experiences... They call them extra-factual memory implants that are like reality and in some ways better than reality because they last. Memories fade. You, you can go on a trip and two years later not remember all the fine details. Here, the implants are so deep, you will remember them as clearly as the day you didn't have them. <laughs> and they'll even give you 3D postcards and pictures just to cement the deal and give you a, a souvenir of the experience you never had but always wanted to. It's a temptation Quail can't resist. How could he not? He keeps dreaming of this place. He can never afford to go to Mars. So how else is he going to do it but just throw down the money and get the implant? Well, much like the setup of the movie, once they get in there into his headspace and start putting in the trip to Mars, and he is also, I should be said, requested a special 
package in which he's playing an undercover agent for Interplan. Well, lo and behold, he really is an undercover agent for Interplan who got back from Mars six months ago and actually spent a month there, two weeks longer than the trip they're trying to implant into his brain. Now, one of the things I thought was kind of charming about this novel is keep in mind that we haven't even been to the moon yet. I mean, 1966, the space race was on and and Kennedy and, and all of those were definitely setting the tone for the idea that we were going to get to the moon. But no one knew what Mars was like. It was well beyond where we were at. And now... Of course, with all the probes and all the pictures, we know that Mars does not look like how Philip K. Dick imagines it with cacti and worms crawling on the surface. It's it's a charmingly archaic vision of what Mars should be. But this is evidence of him being there is actually back at his home. Once they have wiped his memory and Quayle is sent back home with half of his money, they try to keep half of his payment, even though the implants didn't take, he finds the maw worms and cactus stubs in his apartment and realizes that, indeed, this is not just a fantasy or a failed implant. I really am this person, and I really did go there, and here's the physical proof. Well, this is where it gets interesting. Interplan, the governments that hired him to go there, and I guess he was an assassin. We don't really understand exactly in what capacity he worked for over there, but I guess like people going over there at Nam and and flashbacks, this is kind of how it's playing out, is that he went and did some bad stuff on Mars, took a few souvenirs back to remind himself that he was here, had a memory wipe, but now it's all sort of flooding back to him. The Interplan police have him bugged, though. In the movie, there's a device that's up Arnold Schwarzenegger's nose that he actually goes and yanks out. It's not so convenient here. They actually are able to hear his thoughts, and anything he anticipates doing, they can be there. So when the agents come for him in his apartment, they know that he's going to go for a run. They know what he's going to do. There's nowhere that he can really go that they can't anticipate. And they don't have the nice device that they do in the movie where he wraps a a wet towel around his head and that blocks the signal. Nope, he's pretty much their slave. And it did remind me a lot of Kafka. I think Franz Kafka is a writer that often gets compared to Philip K. Dick. He often wrote about bureaucracies and, and people being punished for crimes they didn't know that they committed and the fact that they're born guilty. You know, here, here's a man who just wanted to dream of Mars. He had no idea that he actually was uh, an assassin on Mars. And now he's being persecuted and chased by the people that sent him there. The resolution is quite different from Total Recall. Uh, if, if you know the movie, you know that he ends up saving a whole mutant populace on the Martian landscape by operating alien technology that changes the atmosphere. Well, none of that, absolutely none of that, is here in the 20-page story. Obviously, it's much more simple. The Interpolice Agency would like nothing more than to take Quayle out. He's become a problem. Every time that he is put back into sleeper mode, he has dreams of Mars, he has the um, uncovered, and this will just keep repeating and repeating. And, and although they would like to keep him alive, they cannot afford to have a person walking this earth 
that knows the, what they did on Mars. So they want to kill him, and Quail decides that he will surrender to them if only they will allow Recall to give him one more chance. And Recall has got a plan. If they can actually dig up a bigger fantasy than going to Mars, if they can find his ultimate fantasy, be it betting a hundred women or whatever it is that he most secretly desires, if they can figure out what that is, they will create that for him and he will live in a constant state of bliss and not question who he really is and thus pose them no further problems. So Quayle says... I'm turning myself in. He goes to New York. Recall digs into his head to find the ultimate fantasy. And here it is. The fantasy is that when Quail was a nine-year-old boy, space aliens the size of field mice landed in his backyard and communicated telepathically only to him that they were here to destroy Earth. But because he is so special, because he is such a wonderful example an exemption of what is otherwise a detestable human race, they aren't going to kill humanity right now. As long as he is alive, he will be allowed to live. But if if something should happen to him, as soon as he he stops walking the planet, these space mice are going to come back and wipe us all out. Well, you can imagine how the interpolice take this. This is a man that they hired to do top secret investigations and he has this crackpot egotistical fantasy about being the only person on Earth worth being alive, according to Space Mice. They're they're furious that they even hired him. But they go about the process of manufacturing that this is a truth and create artifacts that the Space Mice allegedly gave to him to assure him once the memory implant has taken that this is all indeed a truth. But here's the crazy thing. As they are going about implanting all of these devices and putting in his apartment a healing rod and all of these things that allow the fantasy of the space mice to be real, they uncover the real artifacts that were really given to him by the space mice. That's right. It wasn't just a fantasy. It wasn't just an ego trip. This boy really did encounter an alien life form that will eradicate humanity if he is to die. It is a twist ending in which, as much as the interpolice would like to wipe out this problem person, they now realize that they have much bigger problems and that whatever he was doing on Mars, whether he recovers that knowledge or not, they can never take him out or risk a galactic invasion. It's uh, certainly different from the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where they had the whole subplot about making Mars breathable and an alien technology. I think that works better for the movie. I think this is much more of a short pulp novel you would find in a science fiction magazine in the 1950s. It was written in 1966, so it's it's written much further beyond most of his short story writings. It's a later period work. I, I like it a lot. I think it's uh, it's got a goofy charm to it. And even though I think that the ending twist is maybe a little, little too easy, a little too obtuse, 
um, a little too M. Night Shyamalan even. I do really enjoy the whole premise of artificial memories, people uncovering who they are through their dreams. All of, the, all of this is such rich story ideas. It's so core themes that play out again and again in Philip K. Dick movies, for sure, and in the works that I've read. It's a perfect example of the kinds of story that Philip K. Dick does very, very well. And I do recommend, if you haven't read this, I think you will be charmed with the way that it is written, the revelations, the false senses of identity built on false senses of identity. It's a story that basically asks, who are you really? When every sense of identity is created for you, it's dictated by someone else. A man who is given a cover by a police agency who told him who to kill and who has been operating all this time as the guardian of the human race by space aliens. I mean, at no point is there free will. At no point is this man uh, in charge of his own destiny. He is the sum total of what others have told him to be. And that is a sobering and fascinating concept to play out here in the short story form. And I'm sure we're going to see it again and again, like perhaps in our next chapter, which is called Second Variety, and it is the original work that inspired the movie Screamers. Now playing is going to be looking at Screamers next week, and I'm going to be covering Second Variety here on Books and Nachos next week as well. I don't know much about either of the source material, so it'll be a surprise for me as much as it is for you guys. I hope you stick around and enjoy. It's only a 40-page story, so go ahead. That's your homework for this week. Go ahead and read the 40 pages, and I'll see you next week with Second Variety. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is copyright 2010, Venganza Media Incorporated.